another episode of Opera Offstage. I'm Michelle. And I'm Jesse. And we're really excited. Today we have three very wonderful, very talented collaborative pianists. We have Mike McAndrew, Andy Gladback, and David Fraley here to answer some of our questions about the best practices when working with a collaborative pianist and some things singers shouldn't do unless you want to be uh, moved up to number one on a collaborative pianist hit list. But (laughs) before we jump into that, couple updates about what's going on with Opera Offstage. If you don't already, you're going to want to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You can find us at Opera Offstage. We host weekly watch parties on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific time and 8 p.m. Eastern time. We'll choose a fun theme for the week. You guys get to vote on what we're watching and we host it for free through cast so you can chat, watch, and have a good time. Uh, Besides that, we also do a lot of write-in episodes, and this next week's episode will be about wild stories that you have about voice teachers or teachers in general, and crazy things that happen in masterclasses, because as we all know, you never know what's going to go down in a masterclass. So if you want to submit a story, the best way is to DM us on Instagram, send us a message through Facebook, or to send anonymously through our website, and you can find that at opera-offstage.com. All right, let's introduce our first guest. So first up, we have Mike McAndrew. Mike is currently a DMA candidate in vocal coaching and accompanying at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where he studies collaborative piano with Casey Robards and Michael Tilly and composition with Carlos Carrillo. This year, he put out the first act of his new opera, I Am a City, with a libretto by Bogdan Minka, who is also a UIUC student. He also music directed Jason Robert Brown's Songs for a New World. And uh, and also this year he was chosen to be one of the young artists for Opera Saratoga before coronavirus ruined everything. I know Mike because he was my graduate recital pianist and he worked with me for months on one of the most stressful occasions of my life. We're glad to have you here. Yes, glad to be here. Hi, Mike. Hi, hi. So, Mike, let's start off with, um, what do you prefer to be referred as? Do you prefer to be referred as a collaborative pianist, an accompanist, coach? So here's here's where I stand, and I've seen multiple online arguments that have blown up over this issue. But for me personally, I prefer collaborative pianists. However, if you call me an accompanist, I'm not going to flip a table over it. Unless <laughs> it is Unless it is derogatory or minimizes my role, then I'll get upset. But, you know... As far as if you're playing for a choir, it's an accompanist. End of story. And accompanying is a verb. Collaborative pianoing is not a verb. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yes, that that is true. That's just verifiably not a verb. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I've always erred on the side of collaborative pianist because, to me, it's just a little more respectful. The other little question I have, and I have for almost every collaborative pianist I meet, is do you have a best practice for giving tempo? Because I've heard a lot of people complain about how they are given tempos in auditions and oh, things. Geez. <laughs> I, I personally don't have a best practice. Like you write it in the book and this is what you should do. But for me, I usually lead that discussion myself. If I don't know your tempo, I'm going to ask you. Okay. And you know, if that makes me look bad, oh well. But if I, if I don't know what I'm going to ask you, Usually, I prefer if you sing the first line to me, and this is advice for singers myself. Make sure you know your tempo that you're giving me, because a lot of times we're all nervous. I get that, that they'll sing it faster than they want it, and then I just take it for what it is. Um, some singers will sing it to me anyway. That's fine. Usually, I'll say, yep, I got you, with a smile on my face, and if I know, if I know, that's not in a rude way or anything. I'm just like to say that I'm supporting you. And if I know the piece well, usually I'll just go. Makes sense. That's good to know. Uh, So is there anything you wish singers knew or understood better about your job, both as like a collaborative pianist and coach and as a person who obviously works in auditions where you may only see a singer for 10 minutes? Absolutely. I guess this is, this is the tea, I suppose. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. So, that we work just as hard as you do, if not harder. This is not saying that singers have it easy. Absolutely not. I'm not saying anything. Like I can see my instrument. You can't. Uh, me being a singer myself, I understand the territory. I understand the challenges that come with it. 
However, while you're working on your own recital, your own concert, usually we have, if you're crazy like me, 10 others to do. <laughs> and, you know, basically be nice to us. And we have good days. We have bad days. We make mistakes. My favorite collaborations actually everybody assumes that us collaborative pianists have to catch the singers 100 percent of the time when we fall and we do but i love those ones where if i fall the singer catches me it happens here's a good story of this uh warren jones talked about he's a famous collaborative pianist world renowned he talked about a concert he was doing where his collaborator got lost he caught him then right after that Warren got lost because he plays from memory usually. Collaborator caught him. And what happened? Rave reviews. Nobody knew. That kind Amazing. of thing. And, and also, there was a master class with uh, Bob McIver, another renowned vocal pedagogue. And somebody was doing, I think, um, Do Not Go, My Love, the famous Richard Hageman piece. And nothing was wrong. The singer didn't do anything wrong. But he walks up to the pianist and says... I just want to tell all of you in the audience right now, turns to the pianist, this is 50% of the performance, turns to the singer, this is 50% of the performance. Be nice to your pianists. End of story. So that's the best thing I remember from that. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. You know, I go into an audition and I have five pieces that people can choose from, usually. Uh, you go into an audition and you've got five pieces per singer that somebody might pick. And if it's a and if it's like a three hour audition day, you're playing for let's see, if it's ten minute blocks plus a little bit of time, I don't know, twenty to thirty singers. Let's say everybody doesn't do the same arias, it'd be a hundred pieces at least. The hardest ones for me are the college entrance auditions. You can get the gamut with that. I've had so many pieces that I have absolutely no idea what they are, and you're talking 200, 250 pieces. Is there any particular aria that you look at and you just don't understand why people bring it into an audition setting? Oh, boy. Out those singers! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are things in my mind that I would never bring to a pianist who had never worked with me before because they're just highly collaborative pieces that don't work when both people haven't had that time. Yeah, and here's, here's the ones I'll say as far as you better hope the pianist knows it. And it's... I only know the female fox, so I apologize. Most of the singers I work with are sopranos or mezzos. I'm not the expert on tenors, baritones, basses, that kind of thing. But as far as soprano, my advice that I've given is if you're going to bring no word from Tom, either the, pianist, <laughs> either the pianist knows it or they're going to train wreck it. There is no in-between. It is so hard not just to handle the reduction. No word from Tom is one, and then for mezzos... Unfortunately, the two German arias they got, which are the Strauss's, Octavian, and composers, they're ridiculously hard. Again, either the pianist knows it, or they're going to train wreck. One of the two. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> rip, they, rip those arias. <laughs> I'm not saying don't bring them, it's just be ready. <laughs> yeah, or like do it if you bring your own pianist. So kind of going off of this, this audition world uh what's the worst binder you've ever been handed well Ooh. i hate to well i hate to spare you of juicy stories personally for me i have not been handed anything too terrible the worst the worst thing i've had to do is read off a phone and <laughs> that's, and that's pretty bad and that's going off another episode of yours some people just don't understand protocol they don't understand kind of the situation and how it, this all works so I'm not blaming them for that. You know, it's like the person who's the acting teacher didn't tell them that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's the worst thing. However, this brings up a big advice point that was given to me when I first started Clavier Piano. My initial teacher, Graham Bergen at Moravian, that's where I got my bachelor's degree. I encourage this for every collaborative pianist. Yes, singers should know that they need to get you your music on time. That's a given. But... Sometimes they have bad days, or perhaps they're young and don't know the protocol, as I said. What I learned is to be ahead of them. If you know what they are singing, get the music yourself and put it in a binder of your own so that it's how you like it, or if it's on an iPad, however you do that. 
I'm not saying that it should encourage the singer to assume that you'll just get the music for them. Their standards should not change, period. But I can't tell you how much my preparedness in this regard has been noticed and regarded among all of my colleagues. Also, we as pianists don't want to look bad. If we don't have to sight read, we won't. Yeah, that's pretty solid. I think for singers, the best thing you can do is as soon as you learn a piece and have it marked up, is just put it in a Google Drive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the best thing you can do. It's always available to you if you don't, you know, if you forget a binder or something and you have an iPad or a phone, you've got an option, you can email it. You know, a lot of people have the iPad option now. So even if something crazy happens, having it on a drive gives you a lot of options. Also proof that I listen to this podcast again, going back to the, going back to the protocol. It's like what Michelle dealt with, with their Pepperdine audition, where it's, <laughs> oh, when <God>. you... <laughs> When you're used to, like, singing pop as standard, you don't think about that stuff. You're like, oh, I've always done it with tracks, so you don't think anything's wrong. So that's kind of the thing. Yeah. It's like, what are the, how are you supposed to know? No, that, no, that is definitely no. relatable. That is exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's also a point there of just having some grace with people who may not know better. You know, once is a mistake, twice is a habit kind of that feel towards things. Mm-hmm. Just like that person who I handed Saper Voreste, who butchered, who I, we co-butchered that audition. Uh, oh, jeez. I knew she, I knew she wasn't a collaborative pianist. She was definitely a solo piano, um, concert pianist kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and so I can't really blame her for being put in a position she wasn't prepared for because she was not the person who made the decision. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you have some grace for people when they don't know protocol, when they may have a reason for why. (laughs) So then what do you do when you and a singer become out of sync or a page is missing or something goes wrong? And I'll say this, my, I think one of the worst mistakes I ever made for my binder was I, I accidentally, I either miscopied something or I put the pages in out of order mid jury that happened. That was just the worst. I've had that happen, but I can't remember the experience, probably because I don't want to. <laughs> you blocked it out. <laughs> blocked out. So this is, oh, any advice on what to do when something's going wrong? Well, it's it can be summed up in two words. Keep going. You can't, you can't just hit the brakes in the middle. I have a lot to say about this, so forgive me. <laughs> now, I will say if this happens right at the beginning, I have seen professional singers start overs. I will say, there is nothing wrong with that. Let me say it again. There is nothing wrong with that. Yes, there's already there's going to be a little bit of tension in the room, but who cares? I would rather start over than take half the piece to find you again. And if your audience truly cares about you and what you're doing, they won't knock you for it. Here's the funny thing for me. I freak out about everything that can go wrong in a performance. But when it happens... I'm as calm as anything, and even laugh about it. That's my next piece of advice, is stay calm. I know it's not easy in the situation, but if the audience sees that you're laughing or smiling or having a good time, they don't know. Going back to, like, Warren Jones, that whole thing, where they didn't know. They gave him rave reviews about it, even though everything was, to them, falling apart. Myself, personally, I've ripped pages straight out of my binder, Luckily, I didn't need it anymore. And usually I just turn to the audience and smile because I'm like, hey, I'm human too, and I'm still interacting with you. Same goes for singers. I've had singers forget words badly, but I either, in some cases, if it's a funny song, I'll make a scene out of it, or I'll just feed words with a smile, and we get right back on. It happens to everyone. Everyone. Nobody knows. I will leave it there because I was I was going to silently say it about Jesse, but I shut up. <laughs> oh, go for it. No, I'm about to mention it. I was going to say, you, I, was you... like, I know you're very good at this because in the first set for my graduate recital, I took one of my French pieces and I replaced an entire verse with the word hélas because I had completely forgotten it. And you know what? Not a single person except for my teacher on that panel knew that it happened. The funny thing about that was as a collaborative pianist you have a split second decision just like a singer does and what happened with jesse 
was she forgot the words, but also repeated back to, like, the second page of the piece. I think it was, like, a four-page movement. And I'm like, okay, I can do one of two things. Let her go on this endless cycle of hell and just keep repeating back or feed her the words and get out of here. And that's what I chose to do. We made it out, though. Yeah, that's, that's, that that, that piece decision. was only maybe 15 seconds longer than it was supposed to be. Yeah, and that was, and that's your decision. It's like, they may hate me, but I think they also don't want to be in this situation for longer. Yeah. Yeah, but you get up and you move on. I mean, just keep going. How has your, your work as a collaborative pianist uh, affected how you write for voice? This, this question, oddly enough, was asked of me on my master's comprehensive and back then i didn't know i knew when i was playing my own works for singer that i was a collaborator first composer second so i was willing to do whatever i needed to do to make sure they were comfortable if that meant changing things i wrote so be it however this past year in uiuc i learned two major things with my work with singers number one write it how you want it even if that means to write a lot of directions i learned that a lot with my duet my opera especially and i know for myself as a pianist this is for the collaborative pianist side of things i know how i personally play it however if i leave all that information out it's going to lead to a completely different interpretation than is desired now sometimes i hate it sometimes i actually love a new interpretation that was something that actually my work with michael tilly that he did a lot of he said you're not playing it like it's written a lot for my own music i'm like oh boy i better go back and rewrite this how i'm doing it the second is what little things can help that i never knew for example having the singer's note at the top of a chord i usually try to give a pitch wherever i can but sometimes i just can't and just revoicing something to have it as the top voice, I had no idea how much difference that made. Things like that. Not all of us have perfect pitch, Mike. <laughs> Exposed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. No, I, I just think that that's really nice, because I think, you know, anytime that you have a composer who is also a singer, but especially a singer slash pianist um, or collaborative pianist duo that's just wonderful for us singers because you do get it you do see from experience what really freaks us out and what makes our job a lot easier which i think makes the end product so much better so that's awesome is there a place that we can find your music do you have like a website or a youtube with all this mainly check out my facebook and instagram you'll see a lot of the current project now and there's some snippets of my music on there this is a good moment to plug you have your project that you've been working on during quarantine art song at home yes where you've been taking not only classical music but also musical theater and an upcoming uh however long it takes of disney yes <laughs> has that been really good for you through yeah, quarantine? It's, yeah it's kept me busy and really what makes me want to continue working on it is just I've had so many singers. One is one reason really is that all these singers that I've not worked with for years. I mean, that was that was great English. Anyway, I there are people from Arabian I hadn't seen in six years. People from high school I hadn't seen in eight that I haven't worked with that jumped right on this. Include It's gone from all my walks of life, but also just hearing the comments from the singer saying, this really got me singing again and got me excited to do this again. Because in this whole time, there's no outlet. And just hearing that this has been a giant outlet for them, that this has been a source of happiness and excitement for them and... That's really what drove me. And even their families, I've seen comments where it's like, this is the first time I've heard you sing musical theater in seven years. And I'm like, this is why I do this right here. It makes all that work worth it. And the Disney's for family, actually, myself, my niece and nephew, um, Ella and Luke, love Disney. And they kept pestering me to live stream Disney songs. And 
live streaming is a lot of time, and it just take, took too much out of me with school, and I thought, you know what, let's do one better, and here we go, I've unleashed the monster. Maybe we'll have the Opera Offstage crew on there, too. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> I would love that. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on this episode, Mike. It was so lovely to have you, and good luck with your art song at home project. Yes, thank you for having me. Next up, we have filmmaker, composer, and pianist Andy Gladback. He regularly works with the Mary Pickford Foundation, creating original scores for silent films such as Little Annie Rooney, Fanchon the Cricket, and My Best Girl. In addition to frequently performing as a soloist, Andy has been a rehearsal pianist for choirs and productions of musicals and operas, has accompanied vocal and instrumental soloists, and has been an accompanist, coach, and music director. So, without further ado, hi Andy! Hello! <laughs> We're excited to We're have you on. We're excited to have you on. Yeah. Oh, thank you. In unison. <laughs> awesome. So just to start us off, what do you prefer to be referred as? A collaborative pianist, accompanist, coach? You kind of wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. I would say that collaborative pianist is the one to go for. It's, it's just, it works in all contexts. It's especially useful for performance settings, uh, because you really are collaborating to create a performance. Um, because, you know, you, you can only say that someone's a coach when you're actually coaching. There's plenty of times when I've been hired to collaborate with someone, uh, but not to, uh, kind of be in that advice giving position that a coach has. Um, a companist is perfectly fine, but a collaborative pianist is definitely the polite form of that. So when in doubt, you should probably use collaborative pianist. It's definitely the safest bet. You're, you're yeah. unlikely to offend anybody with collaborative pianist. Exactly. Um, and the yeah. other kind of general question we've been asking is, uh, what's a best practice for giving tempo? Because I've just heard such a variety of options over the years. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that I'm not going to narrow it down for you. What actually works best for me is when a singer sings their line. Honestly, normally when, let's say in an audition scenario, a singer will come to the piano and I will ask for them to do that. Usually the, the accompanist or collaborative pianist can give you uh, an idea of what they need from you right there on the spot. But yeah, what works best for me is when a singer sings their own line. If they sing the accompaniment, they tend to go a little too fast. And then next thing you know, when it's time for them to come in, they're taking a slower tempo. That being said, though, sometimes singers will also go too fast when you ask them to sing their own line because, you know, there's, there's, given the situation, you're a little nervous and, you know, you don't want to spend too much time by the piano. Um, it can be a little rushed. And then when it comes time to actually perform, it'll be slower than expected. But it's, as far as I can tell, it's much better than tapping it out or something like that. Uh, because when a singer sings their own line, they are, more likely to do what they are going to do when they're actually performing. Yeah. I've also heard that sometimes, like, the tapping and everything can come off as just a little bit rude. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends how it's done. I mean, if it's done vocally, if someone says, and it goes, oh, one, two, three, four, yeah. or whatever, that's okay. But sometimes when a singer's like, it's like this, snap, 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 <laughs> then it feels a little condescending. Don't Play snap. monkey. <laughs> don't snap yeah. at your waiters and don't snap at your collaborative pianists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But since we're talking about giving tempos, which is pretty much really only something that's going to happen in an audition scenario anyway, because otherwise, hopefully, you've met them before. But what's the worst binder you've ever been handed? Because Andy worked at Michelle and I's undergrad. So you've worked with a number of students of varying levels of knowledge of what's appropriate in, a, in an audition setting. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. To put it kindly. like, oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know if I could say, like, what's the worst. It is always better to have a binder. That makes a big difference. Loose pages very easily go blowing away. Even indoors, <laughs> it's just air conditioning. I'll tell you this, though. The best binders have a clearly marked start and end. Usually it's nice to give a kind of bracket on either end of it and to do it in like a permanent marker or something like that that's thicker than, let's say, the width of the staff lines. And if it's 
relatively short. If it's something like 32 bars, but for whatever reason those 32 bars don't fit on two pages, it's really nice to have them spread out over three pages. So the ones that are the, the worst I've gotten are, the, are usually the ones where they're like punched badly, you know, or like where, where they couldn't find a hole punch, so they just, you know, uh, took the rings to make the holes, and, uh, and so you can't turn it as well as, as you ought to. But yeah, the cleaner and uh, more obvious, the better. When the copy is, when it's like a, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. <laughs> Handed um, down through the generations and, of voice teachers. Yeah, exactly. Also, please, oh man, this, uh, this, I hate it when this happens. Sometimes, you know, all the vocal lines will be on the page, but the <laughs> bass staff of the piano at the bottom of the page is cut off. Um, and I just have to guess. Uh, please, yeah, do not do that. Oh, man. I can definitely think of some pieces that I have owned over the years that look exactly like what you just described. <laughs> I've definitely Oof. had to draw in. Like, I didn't realize that something got cut off, and I've had to draw in the bottom line of it. But what's the what's the weirdest thing a singer's ever asked of you in an audition or just in a coaching? Because I know singers, like, we're not always the most considerate or like thinking about what we're asking of our collaborative pianist. So has anybody just had some unruly demand? Yeah, I mean it's happened. <laughs> um, and I mean it's not it's not necessarily like some kind of you know personality failing of singers. It's just that you're not pianists, so you don't necessarily know what we are capable of and not capable of. A young singer once asked me. I think they they didn't know the audition was coming. Like they found out that day or something like that. And so they went through their repertoire and they found a piece that they couldn't find sheet music for, but that, that was what they were prepared to do. That was like, oh, I have those 32 bars memorized and I can do it. They brought their phone and had me listen to it. They knew that this is going to be a problem. It was like a half hour or so before their actual audition time. They're like, oh, can you get Andy? And brought me to listen to their phone and asked if I could do it by ear, which is crazy. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> so that's probably the weirdest. I've also had singers bring in, for musical theater auditions, this has never happened for a classical audition, but bring in something that was a lead sheet. It was just like straight out of a fake book, which I could do, um, but you cannot expect other pianists to do. Oh my gosh, I've also uh, had uh, singers ask me to transpose. Um, that seems like the site. worst. Yeah. That seems like the mm -hmm. ultimate offense. You know, it depends on someone's skill set, but it is not something that you should expect. From even the most talented or well-rounded player, if you expect that kind of thing, that's very insulting. <laughs> the problem with, let's say, lead sheets is that they don't necessarily give you information about what kind of accompaniment the singer is going to expect. And that's like the general expectation is that the pianist is going to be able to read notes on a page. Um, after that, you're anything else is extra. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and th we're talking right now about the level of preparedness usually for auditions, but you brought up when we were talking before this about preparedness for a coaching, which is something I hadn't really considered because um, I don't I don't prepare for coachings in the same way I necessarily prepare for lessons. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like what is preparing for a coaching appropriately look like. Really, it's it's just being familiar with the music that you're going to work on. A lot of singers don't know that it's not really appropriate to ask your coach to like plunk out notes. Obviously, if you're having trouble with a section and you have done your due diligence and you're like, I still am having trouble with this interval, whatever, we're happy. I Well, I am anyway. Happy to help. And if you're early on in your artistic development, coaches are also usually pretty willing to, to help with that kind of thing. But at a certain point, there is an expectation that you know how to read the music and how to do the work beforehand so that you come to the coaching knowing what the pitches are, knowing what the rhythms are, knowing what oh my gosh, please know what your words mean. This is not exactly at a professional level, but with singers who are learning, I've had so many times when they don't know what tempo indications mean, they don't know what the words they're singing mean. So doing that kind of research is super important. Also, people tend to pay attention to the words, the rhythms, the pitches, and then they forget about like the dynamics, the articulations, the tempo indications. It's also helpful to be familiar with the accompaniment, especially in opera. Sometimes there's information in the accompaniment that is not given in the vocal line. And in general, the singer should know what's going on around them. It just gives them a, a, a better context for what they're doing. With those things in mind, 
the coaching can be much more specific and we can get into much more detail and we can do more repetitions if that's necessary. There's also a certain kind of psychological uh, aspect of being prepared for coaching, knowing that you don't have to be perfect and that you're going to be given advice and that, oh my God, and just like keeping your ears open, just, just like listening. This goes for lessons and this is very common where a teacher will be giving advice, where a coach will be saying, this rhythm is actually like this, or the tempo should be, or this, it's this pitch actually, or this vowel is supposed to be like this. And the singer will just start singing it right there. You know, the enthusiasm for singing is really great, um, <laughs> but that is a situation where listening is more important than doing at that moment. And that's, I mean, that, that has happened to me with singers at all levels. That is not just a beginning singer thing that happens. I think we're just trying to lock it in memory-wise sometimes, and we're so afraid of forgetting. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. In those situations, everyone in the room is there to help make it better. So, like, if you're worried about, like, oh, I'm going to forget it right away, don't worry. We'll go over it again. We're, we'll still we'll still be there. We've got your back. But I, I think that's the psychological part of it is being open to that what you are getting from them is their advice, what they have to say. And so if you don't go into it wanting to get as much from them as possible... It's, it's not going to give you as much as it could. Yeah, sounds about right. So prepare for your coachings next time, friends. Yeah, and I, that's just part of, I think, of your education as a singer is learning about <laughs> how to prepare for things appropriately. But you cannot walk into a situation and not know your words, not know what the context of the scene or whatever song cycle it is that you're singing. Um, because you just end up wasting your own time as well as theirs. Exactly. Yep. Um, and it's just much more fulfilling to have a session where you get to really talk about the nitty gritty of a piece and get to really experiment with it instead of doing the back work. Yeah, doing the things that you probably should have known already. Yeah. Yeah. So our last question for you is: How can singers best show their appreciation and respect to their collaborators? Um, and what are some ways for people to foster a good relationship, especially with those coaches uh, and collaborative pianists that they're working with? Um, Consistently. Well, being prepared is definitely a big part of that. It just shows respect for the process. And like any good relationship, it's it's also about quality time. If a singer comes in twice a week or something, then it's like, oh, okay, I know that this singer is committed. And usually that also means that they are doing the practicing between sessions so that they are coming in with more ideas, with more specific interpretations. Acknowledging that the relationship is collaborative is really important for fostering a good relationship. Because otherwise it, it feels like we are putting more into it than you are taking. And, and that even goes in a performance setting. It's important to acknowledge your collaborator as often as you allow yourself to be acknowledged. I mean, really, when you think about it, the audience would probably rather listen to us play the accompaniment without you than listen to you sing without us. Uh, we have a lot more notes that we are covering, and uh, it is a partnership. Don't pretend like you're a solo act and we could just be anybody. Yeah, it's so, so honestly... <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, like I said earlier about not singing when you, when you should be listening... Although, you know, what is, it is also very useful. It is, a, it is a collaboration. When you have an idea, don't hide it. Let us know how you want to contribute. But in general, it's actually probably more just about treating people with respect regardless of the, the roles. You know, if, if you see the person that you're working with as someone worthy of your esteem, these things will probably sort themselves out. Since you have the floor to talk to all singers... Um, composers and collaborative pianists alike. Is there anything else that you would like to cover? I would like to say that uh, I find very frequently that singers are not always willing to put in the work it takes to be a singer. And that doesn't mean practicing necessarily, although it can. There's a lot of ways that singers can practice that don't necessarily involve singing. You know, there's there's only a certain amount of actual vocal production that you can do in a day. That's very understandable, but but there's a lot more you can do to be prepared outside of actually singing. And I have one other thing to say that I'm realizing myself. Your 20s 
are not going to be good. They're just not. I don't know if this was... <laughs> I uh, love if this, that. <laughs> if this was something that's always been true, or if it's just something that is kind of a new development because we have such a large generation above us that is still in the workforce and, and keeping positions of power to themselves. Opportunities are not going to come. You have to make them. And you have to find other ways, like singers especially, it's one of those professions where there's so much rejection that the opportunities are only going to come because you hung in there and and you got lucky. And so that usually means you're going to like need another job. There is a mistaken idea that being a good singer is all it takes, and it doesn't. It takes luck, it takes networking. We have our first episode of this podcast is titled Self-Advocacy, and it's all about the fact that a lot of what you do, especially in your 20s, is making your own opportunities because it simply doesn't come easily. And, you know, there's a total loss of funding. It's going to be a really difficult upcoming year because there are going to be a lot of companies that go under this year because of coronavirus. I mean, that's just the reality. And so, and not only that, we just live in a constantly changing landscape for music. You're going to have to be able to adjust. And it's so much more than just being able to sing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, I, I mean, being able to sing well really helps. <laughs> and there's a lot of... of True. Uh, singers who who are like, well, can I just love performing? And 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 it's like, no, you have to be good at it too. And again, it is going to be hard to get good because you do have to, you know, take other jobs and and divide your time. It's not just the work of things outside of the craft; it's also the work of the craft itself. I mean, as classical singers, it's about learning languages and getting better at sight singing. You know, getting to know the repertoire and what the market is like, what kind of productions are going on, what people are going to be more interested in hearing you sing. There's a number of people who like performing, but they don't necessarily like what seems to them as preparing an excess for that performance. And that's okay. You know, it, it, it's not necessarily invalid, but it's it's not going to serve you in a career. Yeah, I think a lot of this issue stems from the fact that we're given the room to kind of skate through school in a lot of different areas and just not really take the time to think, am I really honing the skill or am I just trying to get the music to where I can sing it at my recital and then it's over? And it's just kind of a shame to see a lot of singers struggling with this because I don't think it fully hits you until you're out of school. And then you realize if you don't have all of those requirements to fill, you're not exercising those skills and you realize you never took them as seriously as you were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you're underqualified, you know, it doesn't make you any less worthy of happiness in a career of your choice, but the career is not going to work out if you're not in that mindset. Yeah. But yeah, so now, now that we've really driven home the difficulties, tell us about some of the projects that are making your 20s a little less miserable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I've been really, really, really lucky. I got the attention of the Mary Pickford Foundation which combines so much of what I'm interested in as a musician, but also as a filmmaker. So it was really great to get this opportunity to work for a foundation that represents one of the most important figures in early film. And it's also really great that they were so committed to quality. And they were also willing to give me the time to write something good. That's just to say that the Picture Foundation has been really, really good about providing a, a good result. Uh, that I've been really happy to be a part of. And that is a situation where they, because they met me, I was 20 years old, and they said, yeah, sure, let's let's hire this 20-year-old. That kind of thing does not happen very often. So the fact that they gave me that experience without uh, having a, a long resume is is really great. Well, Andy, thank you for joining us today. I think we got a lot out of talking to you, and I think I learned a couple things that I, I actually wouldn't have known. Um, so thanks for giving us your valuable expertise. Yeah, I was honored to be invited. Thank you. Next up, we have David Fraley with us. David is a recent graduate of the Pepperdine Music Department and a pianist and music director in the greater Los Angeles area. During his time at Pepperdine, he music directed Contempo, which is a musical theater ensemble for four years, and he also was the piano conductor of Big Fish. 
Currently, David gives private lessons and works as a choral and instrumental coach and accompanist. But this fall, he's actually going to be piano conducting Sunday in the Park with George at Pepperdine. <laughs> David, we're very excited to have you here with us. Um, and thank you for giving us a little bit of your time. Happy to be here. Awesome. So to start us off, David, what do you prefer to be referred as? Collaborative pianist, accompanist, coach? You kind of wear a lot of hats, so what's what's your preference? Or what is common practice? I think generally I want to just be called pianist. I was thinking about what I like to be called, and I thought of it as the title you have in a business. It's shorter the higher up that you are. So when you're at the top, you're the CEO. And then you're like assistant to the CEO. And then you're like the regional branch manager of the Northwest Division of, of Sales. And it's like, you know what I mean? It gets less specific. I think it's a way of a good show of respect to just call me pianist. And uh, you can call me a coach if I'm coaching you. No, I like pianist is, is short and simple and, and true, right? That's, that, yeah. that is what you are. That's what you do. Right. That's my thing. Other kind of just general question is, how do you prefer people give you tempo? Especially in situations like auditions. I've heard a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things. I think what people tell me the most is that they were told not to snap. And I, that's like the number one thing I hear it all the time. Of, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Like, I, I just snapped. I'm so sorry. I'm not supposed to. I, I don't really care. I think snapping is totally fine. You can clap politely. Um, and really, anything that gives me a beat is, is really fine. I've also had a lot of people just sort of start singing it, which is fine too. I think that People shouldn't combine any of the ways of giving tempo, though. Because there are a lot of times people will sing and they'll snap at the same time. And it's a little <laughs> overkill, and sometimes, like, the snapping gets a little off because they're thinking about the singing too much. And it's just not really helpful anymore. And um, then they give you two tempos. <laughs> so <laughs> which yeah, do I pick go. from? Everything short of being a one-man band. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't give me the whole fat and fat down. <laughs> Amazing. No that seems to be the, the, the consensus, is just kind of do what you need to do to be the most accurate with your tempo. Although it does kind of seem like there are accompanists um, in auditions that just hate the snaps. So maybe don't snap? I don't know. I mean, to, to be determined. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's it's a hard question for me to answer because I consider piano a very like a solo instrument in the way that you don't never you never see two pianos in the same room. You don't have two pianists in the same gig. Like you only need one pianist for the gig and there's a bunch of singers or a bunch of instrumentalists, other instrumentalists. Um, but I don't interact with a lot of pianists rarely ever actually. We're just sort of colleagues who who send each other jobs. Um, so I don't really know what their preferences are the way that singers do because singers will interact with a bunch of different pianists. That's why we're collecting opinions. <laughs> this yes. Is, this is, this the is, the field this is a very small sample set, but we're working on it. <laughs> so since you've kind of taken more of the like collaborative pianist approach, um, I think something that we as singers often think is what are some of the ways that we can best show our appreciation? So if you're saying you've had a lot of gigs where you've felt appreciated what does that look like to you i think it's uh just basic human decency um I, I think of it as when people conflate what a pianist is it makes me feel sort of like this magical elf that's coming in and doing something like no one else can do what you're doing like this is amazing what you're doing um and i, I don't i don't think i want to feel too crazy magical that I can come in and, and play piano for something. I think it's just the recognition of like, hey, you're with us, you're making music with us, and you're an equal partner in it. You're an equal piece of the puzzle, and and we're not going to act like you're Mr. Background Guy. Are there any ways that singers can actively kind of foster a good relationship? Because, you know, when working with your pianist or your coach, so much of that is built on trust. And so much of the process of even having the trust is building it, right? So uh -huh. are there ways to kind of foster a good relationship? The, the thing that comes to mind as the biggest distance sort of between the pianist and the singer is that a lot of times singers don't know the pianist, like actual notes, like my actual part. You don't have to know how to play the piano. But just the way that I, as a pianist, know your vocal part. I don't have to know how to sing it, but I know when you're singing, I know what you're singing. And I think that I've found a lot of singers that 
they don't know what the pianist is doing. It's like uh, if you have six beats of rest, then they're going three, four, one, two, three, four. And I'm saying like, you could just listen to me and I'm going and like that's when you come in. Like you could just hear me, listen to me instead of like, oh, I'll let him do his thing. It's like, oh no, I know what you're doing there. We're equal parts. It's like having respect for my notes just as much as you have respect for each of your notes. I find that as like probably the biggest thing that I feel when I work with singers and I can feel like they're, they're with me is if they know what the piano is doing when they're not singing. No, that's very good advice. I feel like I do that sometimes, especially when I'm first learning a piece. I feel like a lot of singers will not necessarily have the best grasp of any sort of musical interlude. And so we first come to our coach and we're like, oh, that's what it sounds like. I don't know. It is, it is for the lack of a better term, just kind of lame of us, I guess, on our part. But that's, that's good to know. I'm glad to have that <laughs> sense affirmed by a pianist. Right. I think that really the simplest thing a singer can do, if, if you don't know how to actually play the piano part, just look at whatever the top note is. Like, if there's an interlude, look at whatever the top note is. Look at the rhythm of it. Look at the gesture and pretend it's just a vocal line. Just sing the, the, the top note and that's probably what you're going to hear the most of and then you'll have a good idea of what it's going to sound like. There's a lot of information for singers in the piano part that can help inform choices you make in your vocal line. And also, you, you should know what, you're, what the other collaborators are doing. It would be like not knowing um, what Tamino's saying to you if you're playing Pamina. It's, it, right. it really is informative. Um, that being said, I will now refer to you as David the Magical Piano Elf. You've opened <laughs> yourself up to this, and I, I cannot some help it. Of, <laughs> some sort of forest nymph. Yeah, he's it's moved true. from pianist CEO to But I guess I didn't consider that, like, there's too far in the other direction, too, where if you view your pianist as uh, someone who is, like, just a, a magician, there's... A, a part of it which doesn't respect all the work that goes into prepping for all of this stuff. It's not like, you know, even you, who I really do see as someone who can sometimes just show up when needed and, and run with something if it's unexpected. That's still years of work that happened so that you can do that. Just like there's years of work that go into being a singer who can show up and sight read. It's not just something that's yeah. inborn. Or a doctor who looks at a patient and just diagnoses them. Like, I mean, like, it may look easy, but there's there's stuff behind it. Yeah, anything that looks easy is because there's just so much behind it. And on the flip side of that, across from appreciation, what are some pet peeves of singers? Things that they do, whether in rehearsals or auditions, that, that really annoy you? I hope I'm not going to make Michelle feel bad, because she was the last person. She was <laughs> the last person. The tea. Spill the tea, David. What did I do? She was what? the last person that I collaborated with most recently, right, in the past month. And I just hope I don't say anything that she did. And if you did, Michelle, it's okay. I forget. It's, hey, if I did it, then now I know and I won't do it a second time, right? That's all about Great. learning. So. Then if you do do it a second time, then I'll be mad. Then I give you full permission to move <laughs> me to the top of your hit list. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the first one is what I already said. It's probably if singers are counting beats instead of listening to the piano part. I know that, that counting beats is important, especially if I'm not playing for a certain number of beats. If I'm playing on beats one and two and there's nothing on three and four, you kind of have to do a three, four, and then you can come in. But I think it's just not realizing how, that the, the piano sings too. The piano is giving you melodies. It's, it's a duet, practically, and you just have to respect it. Another one I was thinking is when people don't realize how easy it is to vamp. When I'm playing auditions and they're asking, someone's asking for an intro, I can say, you know, I can just keep playing this measure over and over again. It's going to sound great. Or like it's supposed to as a repeat sign on it. Or when people, when singers come in and they were a little bit late and not just that. Hold on, I'm not done. <laughs> when singers come in a little late and they think that I am not going to wait for them. They think I'm just going to keep on bulldozing on like a track, right? Like a recording. And they have to catch on. So if they miss the first word, they just skip the first word and go to the second. But I think in a lot of music, like, I can rubato. I can add an extra half a beat in there that you don't really notice. 
or we can play that beat again. It's okay. Maybe the audience will be like, oh, maybe that was a 5-4 measure they just played instead of 4-4. Like, it's, it's okay. People sometimes think that I, I can't compensate for what they're doing, which is funny because th- they would expect me to, like, follow them and wait for them, but they don't realize that I can catch up to them, I can slow down for them. The singer should just go, and if they make a mistake, like, it's fine, you know? Yeah, your pianist always has your back. <laughs> just, yeah. just, that's where the trust comes in. Yeah, I, I think it's probably a downfall of, of practicing too much with tracks or something that can't that, that can't change for you, whereas I'm like a magic track. Like, yeah, I'll follow you, and just being comfortable with that. Interesting that I can do that. Well, yeah, and I think the best thing anyone can do is do the most predictable thing. Because once you try and adjust too much when you try to skip a word or whatever, you're now putting both people into an unpredictable situation. Whereas if you just start from the beginning and keep going, you have somewhere to work from. Yeah, yeah. There have been times where, let's say there's a conf- there's a confusing measure and maybe they come in a beat early and I compensate for them because I assume that when they're coming in, they're going to continue. And then they think after they started singing, oh, maybe I came in too early. Let me slow down. And then it's like, we're doing this, like, millisecond game of, like, we're, we're each going forward and backward trying to sync up with each other. And they're, yeah. like, not really singing the words. And it's like, really, it's up to you because you're the one that the audience is looking at. You're the one they're hearing the most. You're the, the primary voice. Like, once you start, you keep going. And I am, yes, I am slightly secondary for that. Just for that. Everything else, pretend I'm not secondary. Pretend I'm an equal. But <laughs> but you have to know that if you are number one in the song in that moment, it is up to you to be solid. When I compensate, it's going to sound fine. When you compensate, everyone's going to go, oh, she messed up there. That, that was a note he missed. Or something like that. You our know? only job is to keep our game face on and never let anyone know what happened. Just do it. And I'll, yeah. I'll fix everything in the back. I'm like, I'm like fixing wires and like cooking, <laughs> cooking stuff on an oven. I'm like doing everything behind you and you're just sort of still and calm. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know because you've done a number of auditions. You've played for singers for undergrad auditions and for shows. What are some of the worst binders you have been handed? Worst binders? Oh, or lack thereof of binders. <laughs> seriously, yeah, no, I'm going to say that. I would say that there's no really worse binder. It's when people hand me just like the papers and they go, here, this is yours. And it's nine papers. And I, I go like, how did you expect me to do this? Do you think I'm like, oh, hold on, let me take that. And I, like, put it in, like, some contraption I have set up with, like, <laughs> gears and ropes and pulleys and clips. And I'm just, like, moving it around. Oh, I got to No, don't worry. No, it's like, you have to give it to me like a normal person can <laughs> turn pages. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the worst. Because I got to light. I got to line it up. And then before they go sing, I say, like, just real quick, look at what I've done. I want you to realize I've got four pages here and I've got five behind it. Which means that at this time, at the end of my four pages, you might have a little bit of a pause as I try to get rid of four pages that are on top of five loose leaf pages. And, and we're going to have to see how that goes, because that's the best I can do. Well, and depending on like how thick or thin that paper is, those things fold, they come down, yes. they blow away in the wind as the person walks oh. past. Yeah, if the air conditioning vent is too close to the piano, it'll like constantly be flooding my pages, and they'll be <laughs> curling and falling over onto me. A couple times things have fallen, I just try to kind of try to keep playing and act like everything's okay as I'm picking up papers from the floor. (laughs) You just keep some kind of baseline going and you're like, "Mm." Yeah, yeah, something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so basically the bare minimum is use a binder. Yeah, just use a binder. (laughs) Please have your music properly hole punched. Yeah, you'll be fine. I don't need those fancy plastic things either. Some people think like, is that what you like? Because it reflects, is what I hear. It catches light, and it's slippery to turn. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's nice. They're not bad. They're not good. They're just fine. Some people think that they're really helpful. I'm like, yes, thank you so much. The only thing I really like to have (laughs) is, like, tabs between the pieces, just little side tabs, so that if they're asking for a specific piece, I can just turn and say, it's the blue tab. That's that's for me, mostly, though. Because I was saying, those seconds in between when the panel says, let's hear this, and us starting that piece uh that's years of my life gone (laughs) (laughs) it really does feel like an eternity (laughs) 
Yeah. That's fair. That seems to always be the consensus, though. Like, anytime you're handing your whoever's accompanying you just loose leaf papers, you automatically are just bad. Just. Yeah. <laughs> you are bad. It would be bad for me if I did that. But I, what I really want to do is ask them, why did you do this? <laughs> why like, did you do this to me? I don't know. I just want to know. I want to understand. But the other thing is, like, you know, I feel like, I mean, you would hate me if I did this to you, David, but there's also the sense of assurance that if something were to go wrong, like, I know your skill that you would be able to just roll with it, but you don't always know who you're going to get when you're going into these random auditions, and sometimes you get people who are solo pianists or are not collaborative pianists and are not used to playing in an audition setting that would just, it would just fall apart, you know? So it's always safer to (laughs) err on the side of caution because you don't always know where your accompanist is at in an audition. We covered a couple of those in our audition episode. Awesome. Well, we'll give you the option to, to turn the table over to you. Is there anything else that you would like to cover in your moment of power? tell these singers what's up i think that whatever you could take from hearing pianist talk it's basically along the lines of pianist lives matter right it's just like be nice be care about us right but i think that neat that should be applied to everything you do i mean and that's obvious but in a really specific way like when you see a musical or an opera and at the bow, as they gesture to various portions of the theater, they're like, why are they gesturing to the back of the theater? It's like, oh, because there's a group of people back there who, like, did really, really important things. And they're gesturing to the pit, because obviously the musicians are down there. It's important to remove the distance from respect. I think to respect someone is to not treat me as, like, that magical piano elf, Right. It's to, like, realize that I'm, like, truly an equal partner who is, like, good at what I do and, like, I practiced and and we're in it together. Um, The same way that, like, the tech guys in a show are like, oh, those are the tech guys. Like, oh, they're incredible. Like, I have no idea what they do. But, like, they're amazing. It's like, no, take a second. Figure out what they, like, have an idea of what they do. Realize that, like, they're not these crazy awesome people. It's like, no, they're us as well. I don't think that, that... to respect someone means to distance yourself from them in that way. Like, oh, you're great. You're doing stuff I don't understand. I, I think that I think that it's important for people to to realize that that showing someone respect is by truly treating them as equal and not distancing them by saying they're so great. By saying like you're so great. I love the way that you did this. I I like being able to recognize what they're doing. I think theater does that a little bit better than classical singers or classical musicians as a whole do because. You know, singers, uh, a lot of times for their work, will put in hours in the scene shop, and they'll put in hours in tech, and they'll put in hours in costume shop. And sometimes the with music, we're so overloaded with things that we're not actually asked to do that same thing. But you do lose out on that ability to really comprehend what everyone else is doing, and what their work entails. And like you said, coming at it from more of a perspective of understanding rather than that kind of othering that happens to say like oh they're brilliant you know i don't know what they do but it's great it's like people are told so much to to respect certain people or to be kind to them and it and then it becomes shallow hollow it's hollow this praise that you receive it's like i if i receive compliments sometimes i'll go i know that you don't see me as really an equal it's like you were just told to do that well it's good to know I mean, that should be obvious, but sometimes people need reminders, you know? Sure. But awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, David. It was so good to have you on the show. Yeah, Yeah. I hope you got lots of of words out of me. It definitely did. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I feel like I learned so much from this episode from talking to our three interviewees. I feel like I have a better idea of approaching a collaborative pianist on certain issues, definitely things never to do, and new ways to be respectful, and some interesting ways about approaching collaboration in an audition setting when perhaps the person that you're working with is, you know, a stranger. So once again, thank you to Mike, Andy, and David for sharing all this information with us. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Opera Offstage. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Opera Offstage. 
Don't forget to submit those stories to us via social media or find us at our website at opera-offstage.com. See you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.